0: grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Um, If you're new with us, we're in a series walking through the book of Micah, uh, and so you can make your way to Micah chapter 6. We'll be spending our time this morning in Micah uh, chapter 6. Now, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and, and to walk humbly with your God. That's Micah 6, verse 8. And Micah 6, verse 8 is really the most famous verse in the book of Micah, and one of the more famous verses in the entire Bible. I'm sure even if you don't have much of a church background, uh, you uh, have seen this verse plastered on a coffee cup or on a painting on somebody's wall or uh, just as you're walking through Hobby Lobby. And uh, this verse is all about what it means to do justice, and there's a whole lot uh, that we as a, an American society cannot agree on, but I don't know that there's anything we disagree on more right now uh, than our conception of justice. So many in our society are, are so passionate to see justice done, but we really can't come to even agree on the basics of what justice actually is. But as we're going to see here in Micah chapter 6, doing justice is not an Kind of optional extra in the Christian life, something you might do if, it, if you feel like it, if you get around to it. Doing justice is essential to what it means uh, to follow Jesus and to bear witness to his kingdom. And so the good news is that Micah provides us a way out of the fog. He shows us what justice is, why it should matter to us as Christians, and where we get the power uh, to do it. And so let's look at this together. Micah chapter 6, we're going to read through the entire chapter Starting in verse 1, the very Word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you've kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, as we come to your word, would you keep your promises to illuminate, to give light to the word that you inspired. Holy Spirit, help us to see what you've called us to here, what these words mean, what they're, the weight they're bearing on our lives. Help us to see ultimately the goodness of Jesus that justifies us and pushes us out to be a people who are passionate about doing justice. God, would you help us? When we get to a topic like this, there is um, so many ways we put our defenses up. There's so many ways we um, try to get out from under what you might be calling us to here. But would you help us to, would you just give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that would want to believe and know you and walk after you. Would you help us to fulfill your call on our lives in verse 8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Please make us characterized by that as a people. I pray that you would, in your name. Amen. And well, again, because Micah 6 verse 8 is so famous and is so often uh, kind of ripped out of context and misunderstood, I want to give it the time it deserves and put it back in context and hopefully help us understand it a little bit better. And so uh, what we'll do is we'll walk through verses 1 through 5, and then we'll walk through verses 9 through 16 pretty quickly, and then we'll come back around uh, to verses 6 through 8 and spend most of our time there. Sound good? Well, uh, in this passage, we see uh, the charges, the call, and the catalyst. The charges, the call, and the catalyst. Let's look first at the charges, because God opens up this chapter by saying that He's got a lawsuit that He's bringing against His people. He calls creation, the mountains, the hills, the earth, to be a witness against His people. He says in verse 2, He's got an indictment with them, and He's going to contend with them. Picture it as if God is uh, the prosecuting attorney, bringing this lawsuit against His people and calling themselves to defend themselves uh, in court. Uh, I played wide receiver in high school on our football team. Not well, I had, but uh, I did play. And uh, as a wide receiver, if you get thrown a pass that's anywhere kind of in the area of your chest or your head, kind of anywhere in this area, it's basically like a perfect pass and if you drop it, uh, it's your fault. It's not the quarterback's fault, it's your fault because he threw you a perfect pass and our quarterback in high school was really good, and so he usually did put it right in the chest, right where it needed to be. And so if he threw one of those perfect passes and one of our wide receivers uh, dropped one of those passes, when we would run back to the huddle, he would sarcastically say, oh, hey, I'm sorry, that was my fault. I'll try harder not to hit you in the chest next time. Uh, That seems to be the sort of sarcasm that that God's adopting here in verse 3 when he says, what have I done to you? What what have I done that's made you so tired of me and made you turn away from me and made you not trust me? Was it when I took you out of slavery to Egypt? I mean, that sure was awful, wasn't it? I should have left you there in Egypt. That would have been better for you there. Was it when I gave you leaders to lead you and deliver you and guide you into the promised land that I was going to give you? That sure was awful of me to do that, wasn't it? When he says, remember what happened with Balak and Balaam, Balak was this pagan king that tried to curse Israel. He hired Balaam, a pagan prophet, to uh, curse Israel. But instead of doing that, God spoke to and through Balaam, and Balaam three times pronounced a blessing on Israel and said that Israel was blessed and protected by God. And so maybe it was that. Maybe it was when God turned a curse into a blessing and protected his people. Maybe that was what made him so untrustworthy when he says, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is the last place they camped on the outside of the promised land. Gilgal was the first place they camped when they were inside the promised land. And in between, God made the Jordan River stand up in a heap and stop flowing so that all Israel could pass through on dry ground. So maybe it was that. Maybe it was when God fulfilled his promise and gave them the land and worked miracles to get them into it. Maybe that's why they needed to rebel against God uh, and they couldn't trust him. God's reminding them of their history together to show them at every turn he's been faithful to them. At every turn, he has not been the problem they have. His righteous acts deserved a response of trust and faithfulness on the part of his people, but instead they were unfaithful. They turned away from him. And so because of that, God's bringing these charges against his people. And what are the charges? Well, they're what we've already looked at in the first couple of chapters of the book of Micah. Idolatry, oppression, coveting, abuse of power, injustice. Uh, Micah summarizes these charges in verses 9 through 12 when he says that the people of Israel. They're shady in their business practices. They're finding creative ways to cut corners and cheat people out of a buck so that they can get more for themselves. They're violent, they oppress the poor, and they're liars. And so because of this, God is going to judge them. They've tried to get fat, rich, and happy off the backs of the poor. And so in judgment, in response, God's going to make it to where they eat, but they can never get satisfied. They eat, but they're still Left hungry. It would be like being sentenced to an eternity of only being able to eat Panera bread. You know, you pay for a meal, but you just get a snack, and you're always still hungry afterwards. That's what's going to happen to God's people. And God, He says, you're going to try to stow things up and put them away and save them, but they're just going to rot or they're going to be stolen by thieves. You're going to sow, but you won't reap. You're not going to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Why? Because you followed in the statutes of Omri and Ahab, two uh, idolatrous kings that led Israel, led the northern kingdom. And so again, because of all of this, the verdict is guilty and God's going to judge his people by sending them into exile. These are the charges that God is bringing against his people. He has been faithful to them, but they have been unfaithful to him and that demands a response. And so uh, as the, the Israelites give this response in verses 6-8, through eight, God also puts a call on our lives. So in verse 6, Micah puts himself, in the sho- puts himself in the shoes of a fellow Israelite. He gives voice to an Israelite as if one of these Israelites is standing up in court and defending himself against the charges that God has brought against him. And so he says in verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord? How, how, how can I bow before him? Micah is highlighting the truth that God is holy and we are sinners. And because of that, we cannot come before God on our own. We cannot make ourselves acceptable before Him. We can't come before Him without some form of atonement, some form of payment to deal with our sins and make us acceptable before God. And so the Israelite keeps going and he says, well, if I gave a bunch of costly offerings, would that be enough? If I gave thousands of rams and sacrifice if i gave 10000 rivers of oil if i gave up my firstborn son for the sins of my soul would that be enough to pay for my sins and make me be able to come before god micah's highlighting this truth he's he's using hyperbole to say if i could give away and sacrifice all that i have and all that i am would that be enough to make me right before god would that make me acceptable before him and deal with my sins and the answer is no. No, it still wouldn't be enough. But rather than extravagant acts of sacrifice, God instead is calling his people to a life that, that reflects him, that walks in his ways, that does what he calls and commands them to do. Look again at verse 8, at this call that he puts on our lives. Verse 8 says, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We'll talk first about loving kindness and walking humbly because we're going to spend more time on doing justice. So what does it mean to love kindness? Well, the word for kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed, and and this is a massive word in the Old Testament. Uh, It pops up throughout the Old Testament, and it's so rich that it's hard for us to translate it over into English, which is why you'll see it translated so many different ways. It can be Translated as covenant love, faithful love, steadfast love, merciful love. And it's this idea of I'm not going to quit on you. I'm going to keep doing good to you and I'm going to keep showing love to you despite how you may respond to me. And this is the love with which God loves his people. In Exodus 34, when he declares his name, he says, I'm a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the word for steadfast love there is hesed. This is how God loves his people with a I'm not quitting on you, I'm not changing my mind about you, I'm not going to stop pursuing you type of love. It's a love that's faithful, that's steadfast, that that shows mercy towards us. And so when God commands us to love kindness, he's addressing really our, our heart posture as we go about the work of doing justice. And he's saying we're to do it out of a spirit of merciful love, out of a spirit and a, and a posture that treats others in the way God has treated us, that loves others with the same sort of never quitting, never stopping, I'm going to do good to you no matter what you do to me type of love. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, this metaphor of walking pops up to describe our relationship with God, and it, it uses this metaphor to describe closeness and intimacy. When you're walking with someone, obviously, you're really close to them, right? And you know them. They know you. You're talking with them. You're sharing things. You're not keeping things from one another. And so it's this uh, metaphor of, of how we're supposed to walk closely with God intimately, where we know Him and He knows us. And it also means that we're to walk in His ways. We're to reflect His character. We're to look like He does. We're to love like He does. And so what does it mean to do justice? Well, we saw in Micah 3, we got kind of an introductory definition of justice, that justice is hating evil and loving good, that it's doing what is right and putting to right what is wrong. Uh, To put a little bit more teeth on that definition, I'm gonna borrow from Tim Keller's definition in Generous Justice, which uh, is just an incredible book. If you're in our theological development cohort, you're gonna be reading it later on in the year. Even if you're not, Uh, you should get and read this book because it's just excellent. But but here's what he says the Bible teaches about what it means to do justice. He says, in general, to do justice means to live in a way that generates a strong community where human beings can flourish. Specifically, to do justice means to go to places where the fabric of shalom, that means wholeness and peace, has broken down, where the weaker members of societies are falling through the fabric and to repair it. Doing justice is about giving people their due as image bearers of God. It means treating people and doing good to people like all people are made in and bear the image of God because they are and they do. And to put a little bit more concreteness to this, he he talks about four different groups of people that the Bible often talks about that can usually be disproportionately affected and marginalized and, uh, in our societies, that can be victims of injustice in our societies, the uh, orphans, the widows, the foreigners or immigrants, and the poor. And so doing justice means specifically looking at places in our society where groups like this have been disproportionately and negatively affected and have been victims of injustice and using our time, and our energy, and our money, and our resources to step in and help them, to step in and to try to address that. And and listen, I I hate having to do this. I really don't get any joy out of doing this, but I I have to talk about this, and I have to highlight this if if I'm going to be faithful to what God is calling us to here. Both of our major political parties today are forming us away from the Bible's definition of justice, and if you allow yourself to be discipled by either party, if you go whole hog into either party, you're going to be moving away from what the Bible is calling us to do here. Uh, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but I really don't think I'm overgeneralizing. Uh, political liberals today, by and large, think that Nothing comes down to personal responsibility. Nothing is ever your fault, and political conservatives today, by and large, think that everything comes down to personal responsibility. Everything that happens to you is your fault, and they're both wrong. Uh, Democrats talk a whole lot more than Republicans do about doing justice, but they frequently advocate for things that are horrifically unjust. Uh, Abortion is a horrific injustice in the eyes of God. It snuffs out the life of our most voiceless and defenseless in society. It does not give our, our most voiceless and defenseless people made in the image of God their due as people made in the image of God advocating for minors to be able to get gender transitioning surgeries is also an injustice. It does not give people their due as people made in the image of God. It does not respect and honor the givenness of the way that God has made us. And it leads to what journalist Abigail Schreier calls irreversible damage. When minors who have Feelings of gender dysphoria are allowed to medically transition and then those feelings of gender dysphoria go away as they get older and detransitioning is difficult or impossible for them. But but even beyond just that, this kind of more politically liberal belief that everything that happens to you, none of it comes comes down to your personal responsibility. Nothing bad in your life that happens to you is ever... Uh, because anything of that was your fault, if you get discipled into believing that, you're going to be incredibly self-righteous in your pursuit of doing justice. Because you're going to downplay your own sin. You're not going to see everybody else as a sinner, and you're not going to see yourself as a sinner either. You'll think everything can just be fixed by a government initiative that that no sin ever has to be addressed. But the ironic thing about it is that you'll actually start doing justice as a means to try and justify yourself, as a way towards self-justification. What do I mean by that? Well, you'll just start doing justice as a way to look good or feel good about yourself, as a way to virtue signal to yourself and to everybody else that you're a really progressive and enlightened person. You're not like those backwoods, hick Republicans that don't care about the poor, that don't care about the oppressed, that don't care about the marginalized. You do. You are that type of person. You are a good person. It's a way for you to start signaling that you're better than everybody else, and that's not actually doing justice. If you're doing justice as a way to justify yourself, you're not doing it for other people. You're doing it to help yourself, and again, that's not justice. And so if you allow yourself to be discipled by the talking points of the political left... It's going to move you away from what the Bible is calling you to do here. But so will allowing yourself to be discipled by the talking points of the political right. And so if the political left, by and large, says that nothing that happens to you is ever your fault, again, the political right, by and large, says that everything that happens to you is a result of your own personal responsibility. It's your fault. If you are poor, it's because you're lazy. It's because you don't work hard. It's because you haven't applied yourself well enough. And if you take that belief to its logical end, then there's really no need for you to be doing justice because everybody who has a hard go of it in our society has a hard go of it because of something they did wrong, because of some way they failed, because of some way they haven't worked hard enough, and that's their problem. It's not yours. And so if you allow yourself to be discipled by this, pretty soon the the whole concept of even doing justice won't even be a category on your radar at all Because why would you need to do it? It's their fault. They got themselves into this mess. Uh, Surely they can get themselves out of it. I mean, nothing's free in life. Nothing comes easy. I didn't get a handout, so why should they? And again, that's just wrong. Who makes up and who creates our systems, structures, and institutions in our society? People. And what are people? Sinners. And so, if sinners create and make up our systems and structures and institutions, would it not follow that there's the possibility that those systems and structures and institutions filled with sinners could, have, could affect people in disproportionate ways, could be a means of injustice, even if that's unintentional? Look, it's wrong to say that nothing that happens to you, that everything that happens to you, it's never your fault. But it's also wrong to say that everything bad that has happened to you in life comes directly down to the ways that you have failed, that it's all your fault. There really are unjust systems and structures that do affect people in, in disproportionate negative ways. And, and just ask yourself, if you lean more politically conservative and you watch a lot of political, uh, political news or you, conservative news or you listen to a lot of conservative radio or podcasts, I mean, just ask yourself, do you, do you really care about those who are poor? Does the, have you ever even thought about what it would look like for you to be doing justice for the poor? Like, what that would look like in your life? Do you even have a category for doing justice in your life at all? Are you quick to share your political beliefs with others, but, but don't ever actually do anything to help people who are affected by those beliefs? When you see someone suffering, when you see someone on the street corner holding a sign, is your first thought, man, instead of holding that sign asking for money that they're just going to use to spend on drugs and alcohol, they they could be spending this time instead looking for a job. I'll confess that's often my first thought, but that does not reflect the heart of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' heart is for us to be doing justice and making a society that's characterized by justice to the best of our ability. And listen, like, this is God's call on our life. This is what the Lord requires of us, to be doing justice, to be uh, loving kindness, to be walking humbly with our God. And and so if you allow yourself to be discipled by these voices, they're going to push you further and further away from that, and further away from what the Lord requires from you. And so I'll just ask you, how are you doing with this? Are you living a life that's characterized by doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God? Would you say that, that Micah 6 verse 8 is a good picture of the way you live your life? I imagine most of us in here would say no, that, that doesn't describe what my life looks like very much, if at all. And, and here's the deal. Again, You know, I talked about how often we misunderstand this verse. If we misunderstand this verse, we will never actually be able to understand what God, we'll never actually be able to do what God is calling us to here in Micah 6, verse 8. Uh, Micah 6, verse 8 is really like a, a synonym and a summary of the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And just like those do, Micah 6.8 so often gets misinterpreted as if it's the gospel and it's not. You know, so often you'll hear people say things like, well, God doesn't really care about all that doctrine stuff. He just cares that we love God and we love people. God doesn't really care about us having all that knowledge. He just cares that we do justice, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, a man comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? How can I inherit it? And Jesus, knowing his heart, begins to test him, and he says, well, what's written in the Old Testament? How do you read it? And the man summarizes it with the two great commandments. He says, what I'm supposed to do is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus, again, to test him, says, yeah, that's correct. If you can do both of those things, you'll live. And so the man asks Jesus, "Well, who is my neighbor?" And Jesus tells him the parable of the good Samaritan to blow up his categories and to show him that you can't actually inherit eternal life by loving God and loving your neighbor because you're never going to be able to do it well enough. Like, listen, love God and love people. It's not the gospel. Love God and love people is absolutely crushing if it's the gospel, because none of us are doing that with the faithfulness that it would require. And the same thing is true here about Micah 6, verse 8. If this is the way to a relationship with God, if this is the way we can come before Him and make ourselves acceptable before Him, that's absolutely crushing because none of us are doing this with the faithfulness that it requires. And, and us thinking that, that a few good deeds of justice and a few acts of kindness, that that's going to be enough to, to make us acceptable before God and cover over our sin is as foolish as thinking that you can pay your mortgage off with a few rolls of pennies. If Micah 6, verse 8 is the way to a relationship with God, you and I are both doomed. The good news is that's not what Micah 6, 8 is about at all. The Old Testament always teaches that salvation is by faith. It's not by our works. It's a gift of God received by faith. Jonah 2 is right when it says that salvation is of the Lord, that it it belongs to God, that it's God's work, that He accomplishes it, not us. And and so because of this, Micah 6-8 is not the way to a relationship with God. It's not the works we have to do to make ourselves right before Him. Because notice, the verse says that we're to walk humbly with your God. Well, your God is covenant language. All throughout the Bible, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will give myself to you to be your God. You can't walk humbly with your God until he's your God. And he's not your God until uh, you enter into a covenant with him. And so this your God, it's covenant language expressing the fact that that God is the one who initiates the covenant. God is the one who enters into relationship. God is the one who saves us. On top of that, the verse doesn't just say that we're to be kind, like we're to do a few acts of kindness here and there throughout our days. It says we're to love kindness, that it's supposed to be the overflow of our hearts and our lives are supposed to be characterized by this sort of hessed kindness towards others. Well, you can't do that. You can't love something like that until you experience it for yourself. You see, Micah 6, 8 is highlighting the truth that if we're going to come before God, because we are sinners, we need some form of atonement. And the good news that it's hinting at is ultimately in the fullness of time, that atonement will be provided by God himself. Verse 7 sounds a little bit like hyperbole, doesn't it? When he says, well, if I could give thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, if I could give up my firstborn son as an offering on the altar, would that be enough to make me right before you, God? And of course, the answer is no. Even that would still not be enough to make payment and make atonement for our sins. But Mike is not just kind of drawing that out of thin air. He's echoing and alluding back to the story we read in Genesis chapter 22 of Abraham and Isaac, when God calls Abraham and he tests Abraham to, and ask him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And so God, Abraham, takes his son Isaac up the mountain. He walks in obedience to God's call and right before he's about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him and says, no, this was a test and he provides the ram that dies in Isaac's place so that Isaac would not have to. And so Abraham calls that mountain the Lord will provide, because on that mountain he saw that ultimately God will be the one who provides the sacrifice. And so by drawing back on this and alluding back to this, Micah is pointing us not just backwards, he's pointing us forward to the day and to the truth that that the reason we don't have to uh, come before God with costly offerings and we don't have to come before god with thousands of rams or ten thousand rivers of oil the reason we don't have to give up our firstborn son to cover over the sins of our soul is because in the fullness of time to pay for our sins god would give up his firstborn son you see jesus came and he took on our humanity and he lived the faithful life that you and i have not lived He did what the Lord requires of us. He did justice. He loved kindness. He walked humbly with his God. And after living this life of faithfulness, he goes and in his ultimate act of faithfulness, lays that life down on the cross as a substitute to pay for our sins to make us right before God. And he dies as the sacrifice for our sins, but he does not stay dead. He rises from the dead to defeat our death and sin so that if we will put our trust in Him, now we can come before God. Now we are acceptable before Him. Now we can bow before Him. And now we have the power to be able to do what the Lord requires of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. You see, again, Micah 6, verse 8 is not the way to a relationship with God. Micah 6, verse 8 is the fruit of a relationship with God. It's what your life will look like as you walk with him, as he begins to transform you. The gospel is the catalyst that empowers you and fuels you to be able to live a life of doing justice. If you will see God's Hesed love for you the way he did not quit on you, did not change his mind about you, did not stop pursuing you until he brought you all the way home, that will melt your heart, and it will push you out to want to live a life of doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with your God. You see, so often the reason we don't do justice is because we haven't grasped our justification in Jesus. Until you get it in your guts that you are justified, you are accepted and righteous before God because of what Jesus has done, you're either going to do justice as a means to try to justify yourself or you're not going to do it because you only care about yourself. But, but the Gospel shows us that justice is so important that Jesus died to uphold it and He died to reestablish it and renew His world so that His world would be a place that's characterized by justice. His kingdom would be one that's marked by justice. So if we call ourselves followers of Jesus and in turn, have no desire to do justice. Well, that's an area where we've walked away from following Jesus. That's an area where we stop bearing witness to his kingdom in our lives, and it comes back to not grasping the gospel. And here's what I mean: if you if you see the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and and you feel like you have no responsibility towards them because you haven't let the gospel shape the way you see yourself and and how you identify yourself enough uh, to to care about justice in the way that God would call you to. This is a long quote from Tim Keller, but I, I just can't say it better than this. He says, My experience as a pastor has been that those who are middle class in spirit tend to be indifferent to the poor. But people who come to grasp the gospel of grace and become spiritually poor find their hearts gravitating toward the materially poor. To the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is a filthy rag, but in Christ we can be clothed in His robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you. And you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess since God came to earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighborhood, as it were, and helped you even though your spiritual problems were your own fault. In other words, when Christians who understand the gospel see a poor person, they realize they're looking into a mirror. Their hearts must go out to him or her without an ounce of superiority or indifference. And so the gospel moves us, it pushes us out to do justice for the poor, for the marginalized, for those who are victims of injustice. And and I don't want you to misunderstand me and mishear me. I'm not saying that the gospel gives us a specific policy position to support. The message of this text and the message of the sermon is not, God cares about justice, so go vote Democrat. It's not God cares about justice, so go vote Republican. It's God cares about justice and he's justified you so that you would care about it too. So step into it. You should care about it too. You should step into it. And here's how this plays out. Remember, doing justice is about building a community where everyone can flourish, where everyone can experience the wholeness and fullness of peace and shalom And so doing justice looks like looking at the gifts and opportunities and resources that God has given you and looking at the places in our community where uh, peace and well-being and flourishing has broken down and using those gifts and opportunities and resources to address it and to help fix it. And, And here's what else I need you to realize. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, we'll just offload that to the church. The church will do that, but But this is not primarily the primary calling of the church as an institution. As the institution, Veritas Church, Jesus has given us our marching orders, and those are to make disciples of all nations. Our primary calling as an institutional church is to preach the gospel and form people into the image of Jesus, to make disciples. And so, yes, we support initiatives and we push you into serving them like Operation much and Habitat for Humanity, and Hand of Hope, but we can't start and staff and serve every initiative for justice because we just don't have the people resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the time, and that's not our primary calling as the institutional church. God is calling you as an individual Christian, as an individual member of this church, to step into this because, listen, there are places and spaces that you as an individual Christian, with your unique gifts and opportunities, there are places and spaces that you can go that we as a church cannot go. And there are things that we as a church cannot do that God has specifically gifted you to do. And so, listen, I want you to dream about the ways that God might be calling you into this, the ways that God might be calling you with your specific gifts and opportunities and passions step into this and to start being a means for justice in our community around us. I, w- I would love to, man, get to dream about what it would look like to be, have an overflowing deacon ministry because so many people in this room have dreamed up and have started initiatives to do justice and mercy in our city. And, and so let me give you a few ways that this might play out. Uh, One, I know many of you in the military are one day going to finish your time in the military and you're going to be looking for something else to do and considering what else you might do. And I'm serious when I say this. I know you're not going to believe me because of earlier. I'm serious when I say this. Um, Getting involved in politics might be a really good option for you to do. Listen, we desperately need politicians who are followers of Jesus and who have not been corrupted, and co-opted into serving a rival kingdom other than Jesus' kingdom. People who can serve in their party without being a captive to their party and who can do the hard, messy, thankless work of serving in politics that more people can flourish, especially in local capacities. We need people who are followers of Jesus and care about people and care about our city enough to want to see it flourish and are willing to do the hard work so that our city can flourish. Something else you can do is is begin to advocate for those who are experiencing injustice and get involved with ways and means to address it. And so not all of us are going to have the means to do this, but, but some of us really should consider stepping into foster care and adoption as a way to embody our commitment to justice for the unborn and justice for children who are in difficult situations. You could serve at Hand of Hope and be a resource to women who need resources in a disorienting time in their life when maybe they had a pregnancy that they didn't intend or plan. You know, it it really might not be a good idea to give your money to the homeless person on the street. Like, they really might use that to buy drugs and alcohol. It really might hurt them more than it would help them. But serving an operation in as much gives you a tangible way to help the homeless population in our city in a way that's going to help them and not hurt them, whether that's serving breakfast or helping lead a men's Bible study. You have a way to step in there and tangibly care for the homeless and for the poor in our city. You could get involved with a, a public school board and try to serve on a public school board and advocate for better educational policies and justice for our children in this community, especially in poorer areas of our city, people that, kids that are dis, disproportionately affected by that. You can look at, at, at our city and places that people have already started initiatives to address injustice and to address poverty, and, and you don't have to recreate the wheel. You can get involved with those, ask how you can serve with those, and ask how you can help with those. I'll give you one more When you became a follower of Jesus, you renounced uh, getting as much money as you can as being the ultimate value in your life. And so, if you own a rental property, you own rental properties, I want to challenge you to see those as more than just a way to earn some more passive income for yourself. I want to challenge you to see those as a way that you can do justice for people in our city. Like, would you be willing to lower rent for a tenant? if it meant caring for your tenant in a time when they had a need? Would you be willing to lower rent costs and not make as much money to provide a, a good option for housing and provide affordable housing for those who have a lower income in the city? Would you be willing to see your tenants as more than a dollar sign, as someone made in the image of God that you're to do justice towards and show mercy towards? Look, you and I can't do everything, but all of us, can do something. So I want to challenge you. Dream about this. Imagine, like, how has God gifted me? Where has he given me opportunities and resources? Where can I step in? Because this is what Jesus has done for you. He gave up his time, his resources, his life, so that you and I could live. That's the fuel to be able to do what the Lord requires of you, to live a life of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. Let me pray that we as a church would. God, would you help us to do just that? God, thank you that this isn't the way for us to earn a relationship with you, that doing justice isn't the way to justify ourselves. Thank you that you have first justified us, that you've entered into covenant with us, and you have saved us. God, would you help us to shape our self-image, our self-identity by the gospel? Would you help us to realize when we see those who are poor, when we see those who are suffering, when we see those who are hurting, we are looking into a mirror, and we have obligations towards them. God, it's not enough to be motivated by guilt or by the urgency of the need. We need your gospel to shape and transform our hearts. So would you do that, even in this moment, even as we move to respond to you, Jesus, would you change our hearts to be a people shaped by your gospel that do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. God, please do it in us. I pray that and over the next few months that, that we really would walk in this and step into this, that we would uh, be seeing new initiatives for justice, new ways um, people, men and women in this room are serving uh, to help. God, do that in us. I pray that you would. In your name. Amen.